Our second reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. And I'm reading from the message. King Herod heard of all this, for by this time the name of Jesus was on everyone's lips. He said, this has to be John the baptizer come back from the dead, and that's why he's able to work miracles. Others said, no, it's Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet, just like one of the old time prophets. But Herod wouldn't budge. It's John, sure enough. I cut off his head, and now he's back, alive. Herod was the one who had ordered the arrest of John, put him in chains, and sent him to prison at the nagging of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had provoked Herod by naming his relationship with Herodias adultery. Herodias, smoldering with hate, wanted to kill him, but didn't dare because Herod was in awe of John. Convinced that he was a holy man, he gave him special treatment. Whenever he listened to him, he was miserable with guilt, and yet he couldn't stay away. Something in John kept pulling him back. But a portentous day arrived when Herod threw a birthday party inviting all the brass and blue bloods in Galilee. Herodias' daughter entered the banquet hall and danced for the guests. She dazzled Herod and the guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me anything. I'll give you anything you want. Carried away, he kept on. I swear, I'll split my kingdom with you if you say so. She went back to her mother and said, What should I ask for? Ask for the head of John the baptizer. <clears throat> Excited, she ran back to the king and said, I want the head of John the baptizer on a platter, and I want it now. That sobered up the king pretty fast, but unwilling to lose face with his guests, he caved in and let her have his, her wish. The king sent the executioner off to the prison with orders to bring back John's head. He went, cut off John's head, brought it back on a platter and presented it to the girl who gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and got the body and gave it a decent burial. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. You pray with me for a moment, please. Lord, we come to you this morning rejoicing to know we are your children. We ask that you be with us this morning as we hear and discuss your word. We ask that we leave this place richer for knowing your light and your presence in our lives. Amen. When I was in college, I took an entry-level economics course and encountered, for the very first time in my life, the notion of cost-benefit analysis. You know, the idea that everything we do 
Every decision we make, every choice we make, has some cost. And I'll tell you, at first, I really bristled at that idea. It just didn't, didn't strike a chord with me as real. I spent an evening with my friends, talking and maybe playing a game. That didn't cost me anything. I was doing something I liked. I was with people I cared about. It was all benefit. There was no cost. But eventually, I came to understand that there is always a cost. The cost might not be translated in dollars and cents, and it may very well be a cost I'm willing to pay, or any of us is willing to pay. But there is a cost. For example, we all chose to get up this morning, get dressed, and come here to church. That cost us not only the, the physical activity involved, the getting up, the getting dressed, the transporting ourselves to this location. It also cost us giving up other opportunities, giving up the chance to do something different. For example, we could have slept in, or we could have had a leisurely breakfast at home. We could have gone for a hike in the park. We could have gone for a ride on a bicycle. I'm sure we could think of dozens of ways that we could spend this hour. We gave all of those opportunities up to be here, to come together, and worship this morning. And that was a cost we were willing to pay. I lay that out there for you and ask you to keep it in the back of your mind as, as the backdrop to the rest of our discussion about the two stories we read this morning. Those two stories from the Bible come from very different times and very different parts of the story of God's people. And though it may seem more apparent to you, I will confess that it took me a while to find a unifying thread in those two stories. First, we have David bringing the chest of God to Jerusalem, bringing it from the house of Abinadab, where it's been for quite some time. Most of us are more familiar with a different name for this chest of God. Most of us, for most of our lives, have known it as the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And whether we know of it from reading the Bible, or maybe from watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, we know, we do understand, that it is both a very holy and a very dangerous object. Dangerous to the point of death to those who do not show it proper respect. Now, just to give you a little glimpse of the historic picture, we all remember the story of David, the young shepherd boy, being anointed as the future king of Israel. And who was doing that anointing? Well, it was, of course, none other than the prophet Samuel. And Samuel was already an old man when he encountered the youthful David and anointed him as the one chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. Wind the plot back a little farther to when Samuel himself was just a boy. And it was at that time that the people of Israel lost possession of the Ark of the Covenant because the Philistines captured it in battle. They didn't hold on to it for very long 
because illness and calamity fell upon every city it went to. And after about seven months, moving it from one city to the next until it got to the point where people were saying, no, 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 don't bring it here, that's okay, we don't need it. The Philistines finally put two and two together and sent that ark back to the people of Israel, who received it with great joy. And then they placed it in the house of Abinadab for safekeeping. And there it remained while the boy Samuel grew up in God's house, became the recognized prophet. David was born. He later encountered David the youth. David then grew up. And having now the adult David through battle secured his chosen and anointed place as king of all Israel, that adult David decided it was time to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now this was a big deal. It was a really big deal in the life of David, and it was a big deal in the life of Israel, both as a community of faith and as a nation. So a lot of effort was put into making the event special and noteworthy to all the people. A new cart was built, especially to carry the ark, a cart that had never borne any other cargo. It was drawn by oxen, and two of Abinadab's sons were driving it. And driving it, in this case, means one leading the oxen by foot from the front, and the second accompanying them alongside. For reasons I don't know, a section of this story was left out of the lectionary reading chosen for this morning. Um, but I'm going to fill in a little bit of that because I think it's worth knowing. The part that was left out tells, well, first off, the part that Tim read said that as they set out, the group carrying the ark, David and the whole company of Israel were in the parade, singing at the top of their lungs and playing mandolins, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. That paints a pretty high celebration kind of environment. Unfortunately, along the way, one of the oxen stumbled, and one of Abinadab's sons just instinctively reached out to steady the ark, lest it fall. And when he touched the ark, he died on the spot. Not surprisingly, that made David a bit nervous. He began to worry that perhaps the ark was too dangerous an object to take to Jerusalem. So the whole plan got put on hold. We're stopping right here. We're not taking this baby anywhere until I figure out what to do. So they stayed put for about three months. And David finally decided and realized that the ark did belong in Jerusalem. So they started out again. And once again, there was David leading the parade setting a very joyful and celebratory tone. He is, as Tim read to us, dancing with great abandon before God. And he is very immodestly dressed. David was wearing only a linen garment called an ephod, E-P-H-O-D. This is kind of an apron-like garment that was worn by clergy at that time. Normally, it would be worn over other garments, 
because, you know, you think about an apron, even if it's a front and back apron, that doesn't cover a lot. But Samuel tells us that, in fact, David was wearing only this ephod and dancing with wild abandon. Not a very dignified image. Kind of like seeing our bishop, Bishop Hopkins, or maybe the Pope, or the President, carrying on in public in their jockey shorts. And we know this because in 2 Samuel, it tells us that Michael, I forget how Tim pronounced it, I don't think either one of us knows, but I'm gonna to refer to her as Michael, Saul's daughter, saw David leaping and prancing and her heart was filled with scorn. That's, that's the translation that the message gives us. The New Revised Standard Version says, she despised him in her heart. Moreover, if you go beyond today's reading, just to the next two or three verses, you'll see that they had words about this, Michael and David did, because Michael wasn't just Saul's daughter. She was, in fact, David's wife. And she was embarrassed. She was embarrassed to see him carrying on like that in the street, not properly dressed, in front of everybody, even the servants and the slaves. What would people think? But David was undeterred. He danced for joy before the Lord, and he didn't care what people thought. He cared only about what the Lord thought. Okay, so now I'm gonna ask you to hold that thought. David dancing with wild abandon before the Lord. David really letting loose, no matter how ridiculous some people might think he looked, because he was focused on celebrating and worshiping the Lord, his God. So that's the second thing I've asked you to hold in the back of your head. This whole cost-benefit analysis, there's always a cost to any decision we make, and David's joyful celebration. Now, let's turn our attention to the story in Mark. As most of you probably know, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for several weeks now. And in the last few weeks, we heard about the woman who had been hemorrhaging for years, who was cured of her condition when she was able to touch Jesus' garment. We heard about how Jesus cured and healed the young daughter of Jairus, even though while he was still on his way to Jairus' home, people came to him and said, don't waste your time, the girl's already dead. Jesus went anyway, and the girl lived and was restored to her family. We heard about how Jesus went to his hometown and was rejected there because who did he think he was? We know he's just Mary's boy. And we heard about how after that rejection, Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs to go all around the country preaching his good word and restoring people in both body and spirit. So all of that is, I believe, what's referred to at the beginning of today's reading, and I'll just read you that very first line again in today's portion of Mark. King Herod heard of all this, for by this time the name of Jesus was on everyone's lips. So Herod was hearing about all these wonderful things that Jesus was doing in his healing, 
his teaching, and his preaching. And Herod thought Jesus must be John the Baptizer, come back to life. And Mark then goes on to tell us the story of how John came to be executed, which is a familiar story to most of us. First, we have John preaching in the wilderness, more and more people going out to hear him, John calling on people to repent, John baptizing people with water, John preparing people for the coming of Jesus. And John did not hesitate to speak truth to power. And he openly criticized Herod for having married his brother's wife. Not his brother's widow, mind you. His brother was still alive. His brother Philip was married to Herodias. And somehow, Herod managed to make Herodias his own wife instead of his brother's. This was wrong. This was wrong in God's eyes, and John didn't hesitate to say so. He called it adultery because that's what it was. Herodias didn't like that kind of public criticism, and she wanted to kill John, but Herod wouldn't have it. Instead, he had John arrested and kept him in prison at the royal premises. Then when Herod's birthday rolled around, he decided to throw himself a party with all the important people of the community in attendance. And the daughter of Herodias danced for him, and he was so impressed that he said, ask me for anything. I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. Well, we all know what happens next. She goes to consult her mother and comes back to the king and says, I want the head of John the Baptizer, served up on a platter. Now this put Herod in a real bind, because Herod knew John was a man of God. He knew John spoke truth. And even though it stressed him to hear the truth about himself and his wife, he couldn't keep himself away from John and his preaching. He went to hear him again and again, and really, it was only because Herod had such respect for John that John was still alive in prison rather than already dead. And now, Herod had foolishly promised his stepdaughter anything she wanted and promised it publicly with plenty of witnesses. And those witnesses were important and powerful people whose favor and support Herod wanted to hang on to. He, he felt trapped. No matter how much he regretted his offer to give the girl anything she wanted, and I believe he did regret it, but no matter how much he regretted it, he chose to make good on that promise rather than renege on it, because he thought if he went back on that promise, he would lose face to the movers and shakers of Galilee. And the rest, as we all know, is history. So what are we supposed to learn from this story? And really, why does Mark have it right here in his gospel, in the midst of all of Jesus' success and acclaim? It wasn't, it wasn't contemporaneous with those other events. This execution of John didn't happen at the same time 
Jairus' daughter was being healed or the woman with the hemorrhage was being healed. It happened considerably earlier in Jesus' ministry. But all those other things made Herod remember John and made him wonder whether this fellow Jesus might really be John brought back to life. And that very fear or belief on Herod's part reinforces the idea that Herod knew John was a man of God, for certainly nothing short of divine intervention could have brought John back to life. Herod knew John was God's man, and Herod knew he had killed John. Some biblical scholars believe that Mark puts this unhappy chapter at this point in his gospel as a reminder to all of us to the people of his own day and to us centuries later, that being a follower of Jesus does not guarantee a happy life. It does not assure us of a comfortable, easy, or successful life. Certainly not if you're John the Baptist, it doesn't. And for many others who, over the centuries, have spoken the unvarnished truth, being a follower of Jesus did not lead to an easy life. Rather, it can lead to arrest, to chains, to public humiliation, to rejection by family and friends, and ultimately to death. John made his choice to speak openly and honestly about God's expectations for us. Now, whether he knew in advance what kind of trouble that could lead to, I have no idea. But I do know this, when trouble started, John didn't back down. He did not alter the message. He didn't spin it to make it more palatable to certain people. He was willing to put everything on the line because he knew that's what God was asking him to do. These two stories we've heard this morning illustrate how different people make decisions based upon the price they are willing to pay. There's David, who was willing to risk lives in order to bring the ark to Jerusalem. David, who was willing to risk looking ridiculous in the eyes of others with a celebration dance, as long as that celebration dance was pleasing to God. There's Herod, who lacked the moral courage to do what he knew was right, and who was willing to pay the price of committing murder by executing an innocent man in order to stay in favor with his wife and with the powerful people of his community. There's John the Baptizer, who spoke God's truth and was willing to pay any price, whatever it turned out to be, for offending powerful people, even when that price turned out to be loss of liberty and ultimately loss of life. Now, you and I, we all make plenty of decisions every day, many of which have no special moral content. Should I have Cheerios or scrambled eggs for brunch? Should I have a glass of orange juice or maybe go for the V8? But many of our decisions do have moral content, probably far more often than we generally realize. 
And they don't have to rise to the level of life and death questions uh, or confronting people in power. Many of our most ordinary daily activities provide an opportunity to think about what's right. For example, the United Methodist Women have been educating us for years on fair trade issues in connection with coffee. Jenny Gee has tried to educate us on similar issues regarding chocolate. I suggest to you that as Christians, we should always, always be wondering, have I made the best decision possible? Would God be pleased with this choice? Did I stand up for the right things? Did I cave in to social pressure? Did I maybe indulge myself in a way that contributed to harming someone else? What price do I pay when I make a poor choice, one that is not pleasing to God, but is disappointing to God? What price am I willing to pay to do the right thing? Now, I offer no quick or easy answers to these questions. I don't think there are any quick or easy answers. I only suggest that we give them some consideration and that we try to avoid running on autopilot in our 21st century American lives. That we be more thoughtful and intentional and God-guided about our decisions in daily life, no matter how large or small those decisions may be. Thank you for listening. Amen.